Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. We will of course be checking in with Adam Boileau in just a moment to talk through all the week's security news. Uh, And then we are chatting with this week's sponsor, Okta. Brett Winterford works at Okta these days, but a lot of you would remember him as the original editor of the Seriously Risky Business newsletter. And Brett is joining us this week to talk through the Lapsus incident and kind of why it was a bit of a non-event. Now, look, it's my personal belief that Okta, you know, mishandled the communications on that whole thing. Uh, But the interview with Brett is really great uh, because he goes through the the whole event, uh, the whole timeline. And uh, yeah, if you're an Okta customer, it is you know, actually a deeply reassuring 12 to 14 minutes of audio. Uh, so that's coming up later. Uh, before we get into the news, though, an announcement. Uh, Catalan Kimpanu has launched the Risky Business News newsletter, uh, and our news podcast will also launch this week. Uh, he's writing up an InfoSec news summary three times a week for us now. And uh, yeah, the, the newsletters, they're fantastic. Uh, they are hosted on Substack, and it's a different Substack to Seriously Risky Business, which is more for the you know, government policy uh, set. Uh, so if you want to subscribe to it, head on over to riskybiznews.substack.com and that is R-I-S-K-Y-B-I-Z news.substack.com. Now, Monday's edition was a bit slow because of, yeah, you know, weekends, uh, but Wednesday's edition is going to be a cracker. So do go and subscribe to that. But let's get into the week's news now with Adam Boileau. And Adam, this week we're going to start with a report that comes to us from the Israeli newspaper Globes. Uh, This was sent in by a listener in Israel. You know who you are and thank you very much for this. Um, The general gist of the story is that the Israeli Ministry of Defence is indeed cracking down on export licences for spyware tech uh, to the extent that a company that makes this stuff actually shut down, a company named uh, Nemesis. But it's a really good write-up that, you know, sort of paints a pretty ugly picture uh, for that sector in Israel. Yeah, the uh, government agency that's meant to be you know, handling export licenses and doing all the necessary approvals is, you know, either dragging its feet or just, you know, kind of flat out not approving people's licenses, cancelling export licenses. And of course, you know, we've seen a lot of pressure uh, applied to Israel in the public sphere and diplomatically. Some of the places where Pegasus, NSO's Pegasus spyware have been showing up recently, uh, certainly I imagine has ratcheted up some of that political pressure. And yeah, it's really interesting to see that, you know, inside Israel, you know, the tide seems to have turned against you know what otherwise was a pretty marquee sort of uh, you know capability for the Israelis and, and and to be able to use as part of you know negotiations diplomatically. Uh, so yeah, interesting to see it you know now starting to come back and, and really bite. Yeah, and this report also uh, uh, tells us that there are a bunch of these types of companies now starting to pop up in Europe, right? Uh, Some of them with Israeli founders. So, you know, I sort of wonder if this is like when the Nigerian police, uh, you know, there was a period where they disrupted 419 scammers and they all moved to Chad, right? (laughs) Like, I'm just sort of wondering (laughs) if this we're we're in this situation where at least for the next few years, we're going to be like squeezing the balloon, as they say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of the reporting mentioned uh, a company that was doing the actual business out of North Macedonia uh, as a place that didn't have the kind of export controls that Israel did. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we've seen some of the other people in the exploit sales business, uh, you know, pop up in Singapore, for example. Um, So, yeah, things are definitely going to move around. And, um, you know, it's a bit, uh, I guess, a bit challenging for Israel that had really come to 
you know, feel like it was the, the centre of the world for a bunch of this stuff to now see this stuff going going overseas. But, yeah, the capability is very much in demand. The people who can make it are mobile and highly paid. You know, of course this is just going to move around. It's not going to go away. Chris Bing over at Reuters uh, has a report up about uh, an Israeli gentleman, actually, a private detective who was detained in New York since 2019. He has uh, pleaded guilty to a bunch of charges stemming from using Beltrox, like the Beltrox hacker for hire stuff in you know in his investigations. And intriguingly, this you know some of this activity seems to connect to the whole Wirecard scandal. Just another fantastic twist in the whole Beltrox uh, saga. Yeah, it's interesting to see some of the things that the Beltrox uh, software and capability and stuff was being used for. Because there was quite a lot of reports about, you know, that capability showing up in a bunch of places. But we hadn't seen a whole bunch of detail and, you know, prosecutions and, and like, the the customers that were actually using that, I guess, is, is what I mean. Um, and so, yeah, the Wirecard was a like big payment thing went out of Germany. They had a whole bunch of dodgy connections and stuff and it looked like they had been um, paying this catch to then go and do a bunch of hacking, uh, you know, private investigation uh, on their behalf. Uh, so, yeah, interesting to see this now pulled together. And obviously him pleading guilty, I guess, uh, is going to be useful for, you know, other investigations into stuff done, you know, with Beltrox. Yeah, so it looks like Wirecard were going after like journalists who were reporting on them being completely shady before like their whole thing blew up. And the Wirecard thing for people who don't remember it, like they had a $1.9 billion hole in their accounts because they'd been cooking the books. And, um, you know, this was a company that was taken seriously. So when it all fell to bits, it was um, pretty spectacular. Now, we've got an interesting one here from Joe Cox over at Motherboard uh, where, uh, and I'm just rubbing my temples even talking about this, but it looks like scammers have figured out a way or a process, right, to link stolen cards to like mobile contactless payments uh, uh, systems, right? Like Apple Pay and the Google equivalent, right? So they've got a stolen card. They figure out how to do some sort of MFA fish so that they can then link that card to a device that they control. Then they can go out and do stuff like buy gift cards using contactless payments, which just seems like a lot of work for this type of fraud. I don't know how much money you're going to make doing it because at least in Australia, contactless is like you know, capped at $200 purchases, right? It used to be 100. It was like they increased it to 200 uh, during the during the pandemic so people wouldn't have to touch things as much, right? But just, I don't know, I kind of give them points for creativity uh, at least. It's certainly an interesting vector and one that I'm, I guess I'm surprised that we haven't seen more abuse of yet um, because, you know, that kind of contact payment, like taking a, a card present transaction and then having a separate you know, a way to do it that doesn't involve the card. Um, but yeah, the, the you know that did seem like a thing that criminals would figure out how to do. And there were some pictures on some of the forums. Um, one of them is linked in, in the article from Vice uh, of, you know, like $20,000 worth of gift cards bought one at a time <laughs> with contactless payments, which, as you say, that's some dedication. On the other hand, I guess $20,000 worth of free money, you know, over a week or two is not so bad. Um, but yeah, Well, the, yeah, the, but I mean, I, you know, I can imagine the forensic trail on this type of fraud <laughs> is like, <laughs> a mile long it's like just lit in neon straight to the person's house you know like I mean, this is an evidence bonanza so. <laughs> 
but the um as you say, like this is more process than a technology thing like this is them just figuring out you know how to turn card data into being able to enroll onto a phone and then the process by which that's validated is not actually handled by you know apple pay or google pay or, or samsung pay or whatever the equivalent there is uh, you know it is delegated out to the issuing banks and of course each issuing bank is going to have a different process some yep. are better than others um, and they've just kind of started to figure out how to get the low end of those the ones that you can you know straight up just phone fish people for uh, or some other straightforward mechanism whereas obviously banks that have you know perhaps you know bank apps on people's phones that tie into the integration that's a bit more kind of sophisticated those will be a bit further down the line but yeah you know i guess they've figured out how to do it for the you know the easy cases and you know they're making money yeah, no, you've absolutely zeroed in on the interesting bit here, which is it all comes down to the bank's process for actually enrolling cards, right? So you've got quotes in here pulled off the forums by Joe with people saying things like Chase debit card is, you know, super easy. Like if you've got Chase uh, credit card numbers and whatever, like they're easy to link. So it certainly seems like uh, perhaps the banks um, could be doing a better job of doing the verification of, you know, whether or not the person trying to enroll a card onto an Apple device is actually the cardholder. Exactly, yes. And also, I mean, how it integrates with the fraud detection is also going to be per bank, right? I mean, your example of leaving an evidence trail a mile wide probably is also going to be per bank. Um, and, you know, certainly any real-time fraud prevention, you know, once again, per bank. So it's a really great market opportunity for, you know, a criminal to go and build a universal interface for this, sell access to, a you know, an API that does this for you, and then handle all of those per bank details, you know, in, in the back end. Seems like a, you know, good, a good niche to be in, perhaps. Now, we've got a report here from MIT Technology Review uh, written by Patrick Howell O'Neill, and he's written up some research from Mandiant that says criminal organisations are increasingly using O'Day. Now, we have seen some evidence to suggest that this is true and that they are using some of the good stuff, right? Like uh, Microsoft Office O'Days, for example. That's one that just um, springs to mind. Um, I do have a bit of an issue with the way people are writing this up, though, because and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, right? Like not all O-Days are created equal, you know? So to describe, uh, you know, a, 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 a crappy O-Day that has a bunch of preconditions attached to it in software that isn't ubiquitous, to compare that to an end-to-end -end bug chain in something like iOS, you know, I think there's this there's a bit of an issue where the public and even some people in policy, they just sort of have this idea of like O-Day is this scary thing. It's the skeleton key that unlocks devices and, and data. But, you know, there's a lot of nuance there. And I feel that's kind of being lost when companies like Mandiant put out reports like this. Not to say that this stuff isn't absolutely worth reporting on. I just feel like, as I say, some of the nuance has been lost a little. Yeah, that was certainly my frustration reading this and a couple of other pieces. And, you know, you go and look at InfoSec Twitter at the moment uh, and there was quite a lot of people whinging about, oh, you know, we hackers had O'Day long before, you know, it was mainstream. We were into it before it was cool, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it was a lot of old man whinging uh, on InfoSec Twitter, which, you know, shocking. Um, but yes, I think, you know, the suggestion that all of the money going into cybercrime wouldn't then get reinvested into access or bugs or whatever. I mean, the evidence does seem to suggest that they are willing to go invest in, you know, in bugs and, and that is an interesting development. Well, but it's also yeah, the, one that people have been predicting every year for 15 years, right? So it's like, thank God it's true, finally yes. come true, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but no, you're right that there is, you know, 
O'Day does seem a bit magical. I mean, uh, for people outside of the field, I mean, the idea of the movie Sneakers, you know, where you've got a magic box that's jealously guarded by the NSA that can decrypt everything and break into anything. Like, that's the sort of perception. And the reality is, as you say, much more mundane. And, you know, I work in an office full of pen testers and, you know, we're constantly writing reports on bugs that we find for customers, right? And those are boring work You mean, you mean O'Day? I'm exactly right. I mean, yeah. you know, we ship hundreds of findings a week of bugs in people's software that we've found. And it's, they're not glamorous bugs or interesting bugs necessarily. And they're not, you know, as you say, iOS, full remote, you know, zero-click exploit chains. And there is a very, very big difference. But, yeah, to people outside the field, that nuance is definitely lost. And I do find reporting... You know, reports like this and reporting about those reports are, you know, kind of frustrating. But I'm sure that's true of any specialist industry. Whenever there's slight, you know, more slightly more mainstream aimed reporting, I'm sure it's just as frustrating in health policy or you know anything else. Yeah, uh, and I should point out too. I'm not meaning to single out Pat Howell O'Neill, who's actually one of the yes, better no. uh, security journalists uh, out there, whose stuff at MIT uh, Technology Review is very much worth reading. It is just wall to wall coverage that is a little bit similar uh, on this. And I, yeah, I guess you and me just wanted to wanted to yell at the cloud. I guess, right? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> we're done. Uh, Brian Krebs has a fantastic write-up on Lapsus. Somehow he's obtained a copy of private chat messages between the seven core members of Lapsus. And what his, his uh, analysis of their chats and other activity has revealed is that this crew is obsessed with obtaining source code from companies that it breaches. And we saw that, of course, with like Samsung, Microsoft, NVIDIA. Um, but, you know, Brian writes this story and sort of grapples with, well, why? It doesn't really make all that much sense. But, yeah, Lapsus really, really like stealing source code. Yeah, there's a, a few really interesting insights uh, in this uh, set of docs. And I think Brian says he obtained them from the original owner of Docspin, the one that sold Docspin to uh, White, the kind of leader, I guess, of Lapsus, who then ra- ran it underground and ruined it and caused some bad blood, etc. So I think that's the source of these of these Telegram chats. Um, but yeah, it really does look like every teenage hacker crew ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lots of nonsensical goals, lots of infighting and doxing each other and cutthroat and at the same time, drama you know, like there's drama there's yes, legit the, drama like when when one of them they have access to some t-mobile portal or whatever and one guy one of them burns it because they're like no this access is trash i'll show you and like then steals a bunch of useless source code and says see and everyone's like what are you doing and i don't know the whole thing's really weird like one theory brian uh, uh posits here is that they are stealing source code to nuke the repos and then offer to sell it back to some of these companies which, I mean, doesn't seem like the best, like, doesn't seem like the best plan. I'm sure there are easier ways to monetize your stuff um, than that. And uh, I mean, one of the things that struck me was, like, when I was a kid, right, I'm all, you know, teens, early 20s, right, the cool thing to have was Solaris source code, right? Yeah. So, I mean, hackers have been stealing source code just for trophies, you know, to have, have, you know, scalps on the wall kind of thing uh, forever, I mean, Motorola source code and Mitnick and you know yeah. we've always always done this as as hackers and so I can kind of understand the like I just want to collect it all and have everything and feel like a, a boss which you know when you're like 17 18 19 whatever you know and you're struck by how much power you've got all of a sudden yeah I mean I can understand that it doesn't necessarily make much sense you know from a from a logic point of view um, but yeah overall I'm just um, oh, so the other third point that I thought was interesting was the extent to which they just bought access. Yes. But they didn't go through the hacking, but they just went straight to the post-intrusion, 
you know, let's go rummage around and steal stuff. And that's, a, I think, a sobering reminder for people who've forgotten that hacking is not always about in initial access. If you can just go buy a new set of creds for T-Mobile every week, and that's, you know, I think was, that was one of the examples they had, or some other companies where they were just like, eh, you know, so what if our VPN stops working? We'll just, you know, the Russians restock three times a week. We'll just go pay 50 bucks and get a new account. Like, that's really interesting, I think. Because, you know, once again, we've been predicting this for a very, very long time. It's been happening in the underground a bit. But seeing it as such a core part of their workflow, I think, is interesting. Nah, broking's a big thing. Access broking's a big thing now. And it's interesting, right, because when I, you know, when you and I first started talking about initial access brokers on this program, there hadn't really been any press reports on it. So I literally had people emailing me saying, prove that this happened, you know, like you're just making it up. Like prove to me that someone has sold access credentials on a forum. And I'm like, ah, you know, like everybody sort of seems to to know, like the people who know, know that this is a thing that's happening. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a crazy situation where the public's understanding that this was a thing was very much behind what was happening. Yes. And, and this yeah, is a yeah, great example of where yeah you got this crew who are like a big ticket crew at least as far as headlines are concerned and you know the way they're getting in is like what are they sending you know 0.05 bitcoin to some russian to get some credits right yeah and that's an important point for people to take i think because it the you know the focus on perimeter now you know with so much um you know access to vpns and citrix and so on you know we've seen a big focus on on perimeter and that's taken some of the focus away from insider and you know access broking in a way kind of mimics an entry point that feels more like an insider by you know kind of changing the like when things happen in a way that now looks more like an administrative insider and so you know the rise of internal bugs you know the rise of privilege escalation lateral movement you know th that cycle is kind of coming around again it feels like um so you know everything old is new again as always in this industry what else have we got here well according to the fbi 60 organizations worldwide have been hit by the black cat ransomware and this is the crew that came out of you know dark side Black Matter, you know, same group of shitheads uh, doing shithead things. And uh, yeah, the FBI has um, has called it out that they, they are, you know, very much active at the moment. Um, what is interesting, though, uh, is that the FBI is also warning that the agricultural sector uh, in the United States could be uh, targeted quite heavily uh, in coming months. Yeah, they made an interesting link there that um, you know Black Hat was hitting universities at the beginning of the semesters when they're under most pressure, and that in the agricultural sector, like the planting season is kind of similar, right? There's a real big important spike in business for which the performance of everything for the rest of the year depends upon, uh, and that ransomware crews may take advantage of that. And I thought that was interesting, you know, kind of especially if there's similar crews involved, they understand you know the pressures on business. That seems smart, and you know the impacts you know, given that there are other things going on with global agriculture, you know, with the situation in Ukraine, etc. Yeah, you can see why they're concerned and why they're putting out advisories to remind everybody of the importance of the stuff. Yeah, we've got an interesting one here from CyberScoop, though. Uh, the headline reads, Russia's war on Ukraine is making life difficult for Russian cyber criminals. And uh, it cites some research from a company called uh, Flashpoint. It's pretty interesting because, like, it's not saying, you know, everything is in disarray, it's all ruined, but uh, this organisation, uh, as I say, Flashpoint, I think their name is, you know, keeping an eye on the, on the forums and, and sort of seeing what people are talking about. And there certainly does seem to be a lot more conversations happening in these forums about, like, how to cash out. And some of these guys are now saying, well, how do we get a hold of stable coins and how do we move money around? And, like, it looks like 
Yeah, just the just the sanctions, even just on the Russian banking sector, are making life hard uh, for these ransomware crews. Yeah, I mean the the reports also suggest that you know some of the cryptocurrency exchanges or mechanisms for doing coin tumbling and laundering are also under a bit more pressure. There's more volume being moved, but there's also you know a lot of concern that you know with the breakdown of relations between Russia and the West. You know, anyone who was kind of hanging out for cooperation between Russian law enforcement and elsewhere, like Western law enforcement that was hanging out um, for support from the Russians, because we did see that, you know, small roundup of people, you know, right before things kicked off in Ukraine. Like, now it's pretty clear there's going to be no cooperation from Russia. Mm. You know, there is, you know, I'm sure there are a few operations, you know, the seizure of the hydro market by German authorities that, you know, it, clearly there's no point sitting around waiting now. Um, and so I think that's putting pressure on the ecosystem for a bunch of places. You know, plus, of course, there's just a lot of people really concerned about how they're going to, you know, get their proceeds of crime, you know, into a place, you know, where they can use them now that they really kind of do need them. Yeah, so I feel like this whole thing's been a bit of a disruptive event uh, for these crooks, but they're going to figure out a way around it. Uh, interestingly enough, the US Treasury, I mean, the, the Yanks are just going crazy with the uh, the old sanctions hammer. Uh, we've got a Bitcoin or uh, cryptocurrency uh, mining company called BitRiver, uh, which has operations in Russia. They've been sanctioned, and I love the reasoning, which is that you know, uh, cryptocurrency mining takes Russia's natural resources and turns them into something of value, therefore sanctions hammer. <laughs> Which is it's some good reasoning, I guess. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see whether, you know, what effect that has. But yeah, it's an interesting angle to take, you know, given the importance of mining, uh, you know, to, to any of the cryptocurrencies functioning correctly. And you know, I, I, yeah, I'm sure the crypto bros must be having a, a terrible, sorry, the, the Kim Jong-un Patreon supporters <laughs> probably fretting about it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's, they are definitely having a good time, uh, as you say, with the ban hammer. Yeah, and uh, I love this. Uh, CyberScoop managed to get a couple of quotes out of uh, BitRiver's CEO and founder, uh, Igor Runets, uh, who denied that the company ever provided services to the Russian government or customers sanctioned by the United States, which is seems an odd thing to say considering that's not the rationale behind the sanctions. Uh, but my, uh, fa- my favourite thing that he said here... Uh, is that the Treasury Department is uh, is interfering unfairly with competition in the crypto mining industry, calling the sanctions an, quote, attempt to change the global balance of power in favour of American companies. It's all a big conspiracy, you see, Adam. <laughs> uh, it's the central bankers, you know, they're scared, which is why they're sanctioning uh, cryptocurrency mining operations in Russia. That's, uh, that's what it is. Uh, we've got a really interesting bit of... Uh, material to discuss now. Now, this has been published by Caesar. Uh, it's a joint advisory from a lot of the Five Eyes agencies. Uh, you know, the Australians are there, Canadians, Kiwis, uh, the UK. Uh, and what it is is a rundown of threats emanating out of Russia and it's actually reasonably detailed and it covers the full gamut from uh, criminal groups all the way up to some of the ones doing some of this ICS stuff. And... Um, I got to admit, like this is a this is a pretty solid briefing, and uh, it's good to see. Yeah, this is comprehensive and useful, uh, and you know, certainly if you're not a, if you're not in this game the whole time, like understanding you know the difference between APT numbers and the various you know kind of spider and bear and whatever names that are given to things, like it's just a really comprehensive rundown of the groups in play, what they've been doing, what's been attributed to them you know, the kind of techniques. And then there's also some good, you know, mitigation and, you know, other sorts of advice that, um, you know, that people should be thinking about. It's just solid uh, and it's kind of the, it's the sort of, 
tedious and, you know, kind of fiddly analysis that, you know, an organisation like Caesar is uniquely placed to do a good job of. Uh, so, yeah, it was a good read. And I think, you know, if you had to stick one document in front of someone to explain, you know, all of the moving parts of this, it's just a great write-up and well worth the reading. You know, if you do need to explain to your senior management, you know, in one, you know, concise way, how everything hangs together and, and what it means. It's very solid stuff. And of course, we have linked through to it in this week's show notes. Oh, and just a side note to uh, the United States Government Rewards for Justice program, which is being run out of the State Department. They are now offering uh, rewards for six on, on six specific members of the Sandworm crew uh, with GRU. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, reward of up to $10 million, uh, you know, wanted dead or alive. Well, alive, I'm guessing, um, actually. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, they've even got a um, a dark web tip site. They even call it that. It's a dot .onion site, basically, where you can go and snitch on your Russian colleagues. Yeah, and that's uh, certainly, you know, if you're looking for a way to get some coin, you know, get, get some cryptocurrency or whatever that's, uh, you know, actually usable from inside Russia, maybe this is the way to do it. You'll get paid outside. I don't know. <laughs> Does yeah. it work if you're sanctioned already? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> it actually says on the Rewards for Justice website, it says possible relocation and rewards payments by cryptocurrency may be available to eligible sources. So this isn't for you, <laughs> dear listener, who's, uh, uh, you know, an OSINT champion, right? Who's managed to pull together stuff on these guys. Uh, this is isn't for you, right? Because uh, FBI can do that. You know, US investigators can do that themselves. Like this money is for the person sitting at the next desk over from these guys, <laughs> right? They want people <laughs> who can draw org charts and they're happy to pay. Uh, Adam Janofsky over at The Record has published a, uh, a terrific interview actually with the head of the Information Security and Cybersecurity Service in Ukraine. Uh, that is part of the National Security and Defense Council there. Uh, her name is Natalia Tkachuk. I have no idea actually if that pronunciation was correct. Uh, but yeah, look, I just wanted to link to this one because... Yeah, it's an interesting assessment of what it's like for defenders in Ukraine at the moment where, according to this interview at least, like they're copying what I would call a broad spectrum of inbound uh, activity, Adam, you would have to say after reading this. Yes, you definitely feel some of the, you know, how much work it must be being in a position like that in Ukraine at the moment. Um, quite a broad spectrum of things, you know, wipers and DDoS and crime and infighting and, you know, all of the, you know, other things that are going on, you know, to to support the war itself, right, the more kind of direct stuff. But yeah, what a what a lot of work that must be. Uh, but yeah, the, the interview is really interesting. Um, one side note I thought was interesting was that uh, she specifically requested that they do not capitalize Russia in her responses, uh, which they did in the interview. So um, that's a interesting you know, style guide thing. Burn. <laughs> she should have asked them to call it the Russia uh, because that would yes, be, that would know, have been the burn. That yes. would have been the the sweeter burn. Uh, now, uh, my favorite infosec drama of the week. This one. I actually found pretty funny, right? So uh, a couple of people at a company called SciSource um, <laughs> wondered what would happen if they used a CVE in EXIF tool. Like what if they loaded up a payload into some file metadata and then threw that file at VirusTotal, like would they get shells? And it turns out, yes, yes, they did get shells after putting a payload, you know, based on a one-year-old uh, CVE, but they kind of wrote it up as... 
it was a little bit misleading because the headline is remote code execution via VirusTotal platform, right? It kind of Im- implies that they popped shell on VirusTotal when really what was happening is their file would go to VirusTotal, then it gets spat out to all of the security vendors who do the scanning in these uh, malware scanning environments and then they you know, send their results back through an API or whatever. I don't know exactly how the governs work, but that's the gist of it. Um, and of course, you know, they fire off this file and then bang, shell, 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 shell. <laughs> So I do think <laughs> it is quite hilarious that security companies have not patched a one-year-old like trivially exploitable CVE in their malware scanning environments. But that said, you know what these environments are like. They're typically ephemeral. You know, you're not going to get very far by by owning them. But, you know, it led to denials from virus totals saying, you know, they didn't own us. This was other people and whatever. But what did you make of this? I, I just thought it was a fun little thought experiment. Uh, what would happen if you if you put this payload in to exploit Exif tool? And um, yeah. I thought it was a really funny piece of infosec drama, actually. Um, and to a certain extent, I was also a little bit like if one of my lot uh, had done this, I probably would have, you know, said, okay, that's cool. Go report it to the, you know, the, via the bug bounty or via the, you know, responsible disclosure thing. Um, they did kind of go a bit further than I probably would have let my lot go, uh, you know, in terms of enumerating the environment. Oh, you can't tell them. You can't tell them they're not allowed to send malicious code at the malicious code scanners, right? That's no, where no, I, I mean, that's that, why that, I think they're on solid ground. Yeah, so no, that part was from. But then they started like rummaging around the rest of the environment, like port scanning, seeing what else was reasonable. You're looking at other services available from inside the like Kubernetes or wherever the hell they landed. Um, but then the other thing that I thought about that in terms of scoping was like this. I mean, it looked like the shells that they were popping were coming back from like Kihu 360 or bits of Kaspersky plumbing or <laughs> something like that. And it's like you have a you're operating under the authorization of a bug bounty program from VirusTotal. Like, does that give you clearance to go own Kaspersky or, you know, Kihu or whoever? I don't know which other, you know, nah, antivirus. Nah, sorry, in, in my mind, in my mind, <laughs> if there is an environment set up specifically to scan malicious code, no one can complain when that malicious code pops shell. <laughs> it's like, it's an exception, okay? Mm. It's an exception to the rule. You can do whatever the hell you want. So, okay, Patrick Gray says, game on. Game on, man. <laughs> if you can pop if you can pop a sandbox connected to virus total, I say go for it. <laughs> oh, well, you, you heard it here. You're authorized. No, I mean, come on. You see, you see. Business bug bounty program. <laughs> clearly, you see where I'm coming from on this, right? I do, I do, I, yeah. It's just maybe I'm a little more conservative about scope, you know, given that I have to look after a team of 40, 40 hackers that always wreck and stuff. But no, I mean, you've, you are very, very right, though, that having having vulnerable exit tool in their sandboxes or indeed the sandboxes themselves, perhaps not being quite as sandboxed as they could, probably not what you want as an antivirus vendor. Uh, and I, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the story. It was good. It's well, good fun. and I don't think they really tried to further their access, right? Doing a couple of cheeky port scans and, you know, PS, right? Like, that's fine. You know, you could say, oh, here's some processes on this thing. One thing I love, though, is one of the port uh, port scans turned back like one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> port 12345, which is funny because it's still, Nmap still calls it Netbus, even though no one's used Netbus since like, I don't know, 2001 or something. Nice, nice throwback, but um, yeah, no, it's fun. Also, they had a rummage around some of the, you know, like S3 buckets and things, and you know, had a, had a jolly good, it felt like a jolly good rummage to me, but. But I mean, what know. is an S3 bucket but 2022's <laughs> mounted storage, you know? Like, I don't know. That's true, that's true, yeah. It's anyway. just like LSing temp, which you know, we'd all do that. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Oh, now we got a bug to talk about. It's been patched, right? We don't often talk just about bugs that have been patched, uh, but this was one in. 
the Apple ALAC, like the Apple lossless audio codec implementation for Android. Uh, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I could have used this bug to own so many people through my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's an, you get that's the android to play the, play the audio and that's it shell time yeah that's a great thing so this was um so apple released alac like way way back in the day and then there was an open source implementation to you know kind of handle those audio files which i guess hasn't been touched in a while and that has ended up in the middle of qualcomm and mediatek's chipsets where they provide you know kind of uh, audio decode services for android uh, and yeah like, I mean, they've been shipping those with ancient code for forever so like I mean, uh, estimates were like what 95 percent of us android devices uh, potentially vuln to this as you say being delivered by audiophile which as a podcaster a popular podcaster of that uh, you are uniquely placed to exploit so yeah. hmm, interesting <laughs> Uh, we got a funny one here, Ben Dixon for the Daily Swig. And uh, yeah, there was uh, an Amazon fix for Log4 Shell, which I look, this is just a bit of a funny one because it could turn into like a container escape or privesque, right? If you put like a malicious jar there that this AWS tool would like scan for Java files and then if it found them, parse them and, you know, whatever. But you could you could throw something malicious onto the storage which would uh, cause you to get Privesk, basically. That's the story here. Yeah, and it was a, it's a pretty... I was exasperated by this bug because you kind of need to do better. I know they were doing a you know fast hot fix and probably didn't get as much engineering attention as it would have, but, you know, any time where you know, the container runtime environment or the hypervisor or a more privileged context is trusting content from inside a container or a VM or whatever else. Like you really do need to be careful. And this was, um, it was actually running the Java binary like inside the container, like to check the version number or whatever else. Cause the idea was it would just like hot patch Java's as it went past inside the container. And, you know, it was using a limited amount of containerization to do so, but not the kind of like standard sensible way of doing that. And we see this as well in other environments, like antivirus scanning up in the hypervisor. I mean, or like, I mean, the example we were just talking about with Exif tool, like if you were running off the shelf vulnerable antivirus in a hypervisor context and then pulling stuff out of a guest, like that introduces a whole bunch more attack surface. So anytime you're engineering a system that operates on resources from inside a lower trust container. Like you've got to be careful. And, you know, Amazon knows that. Um, and I know this was probably rushed, but like, it's not a great, it's not a great look um, whenever Amazon makes a mistake like this. And then of course, a bunch of other people picked up this hot batch because it, you know, it solves a real problem and we're using it in other contexts as well. So it's just a, I mean, I, you know, clearly they meant well, but that needed a bit more engineering uh, than they gave it. I think this is one of the, I think this is one of those instances though where it's mostly we have a problem with it in principle, right? Like I don't think this is actually going to get anyone owned. I, I mean, mean it, was, it was Palo Alto Networks who found the bug, right? But yeah, security tools shouldn't introduce these sorts of vulnerabilities because they're architected poorly, right? I'm with you, but I don't know. I just don't see this as, you know, a particularly... No, I mean, it's not right. one of those like if this is going to live forever, you know, long term bugs we have to be scared of. It is more an example of an archetype, you know, I mean, even before virtualization and containerization were a thing that like we used to see it in, you know, hosting provider backup systems, mm. you know, that would come and tar up your file system and then let you restore them later and you could haul resources from other parts of the system, et cetera, et cetera. Overwrite so, keys yeah, into a, whatever directory you wanted, that sort of thing. Uh, Exactly right. It's just a, you know you need to be mindful of the security boundary whenever you cross it, uh, and they weren't in this case. Yeah, but as you say, man, log4shell. Everyone remembers <laughs> the panic. 
the panic. It was uh, it was really yes. something. Now, oh, I know you love a good Java bug. Talk us through this oh, one. Oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. <laughs> Dan lordy, has, lordy, lordy. Dan Gooden has the write-up over at Ars Technica on this one. And yeah, I just knew you were going to enjoy talking about this one. Adam, oh, go. For, go. For, for God's sake, Oracle. <laughs> so, And by the way, Java by the way, 50- just, just briefly, I think Oracle's patched something like five, they've shipped something like 540 security fixes across their portfolio uh, in a recent patch. Like just the typical thing they do, which is just hang on to these things forever and then patch everything. Uh, but yes, go on. Tell us about this particular bug. Okay, so uh, in Java 15 and above, they had reworked uh, some of the cryptographic you know, components uh, and they had a new implementation of uh, elliptic curve digital signatures and... You know, elliptic curves are, are used in a bunch of modern stuff, like very, very regularly used in signing um, JWT tokens uh, used for web, web authentication. So like pretty much all modern web apps probably using JWTs to handle authentication or single sign-on, passed around authentication and credentials. Typically those are, you know, signed using elliptic curve digital signatures. Oracle implemented, a, you know, the validation routine for this and they didn't read the Wikipedia page on how you validate elliptic curve digital signatures and they missed one particular check uh, which is that some of the values involved are not zero (laughs) the result of this is essentially you can bypass ecdsa signature checking on anything that uses it in our java 15 and up yeah which would be catastrophic if anyone was using anything more recent than java 7 (laughs) or java 6 which they're not um so in that respect it's just an awful bug and if that happened in .NET it would be a planet melter yeah and the fact that it is not a planet melter in the context of Java does say something about uh, the Java ecosystem as a whole and its inability to you know move with the times well you remember do you remember our our headline after uh, log4j it was uh, Java being a fiddly mess saves the day right and and this is this is a pattern (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's just, it's so <laughs> no bad. One's like, vulnerable literally to this no the one's, Wikipedia page. No one's figured out how to upgrade their Java. I know. Because <laughs> no one wants to build new Java and everything that was built in Java was built by developers that quit as soon as it was done yeah. and moved on to somewhere else and now write Rust very very happily or something. Yeah. But yes, like what a... Uh, I'm, just... it. I know that someone told me that they were waiting for the the Adam Wallo sigh. Give it to us <laughs> about Come this on. exact Come thing on. on risky business. Like, <sighs> there it is. There it is. There it is. Yes. Now, in uh, some very stupid news, Adam, uh, some Instagram account, the Bored Ape Yacht Club Instagram account, got hacked, and this led to millions of dollars of apes being stolen. These are words that are coming out of my mouth. Right now, <laughs> I think it put put in other way. Put another way, a bunch of people had to say those words, Adam. My apes, they're all gone. <laughs> I mean, I don't even understand why. I, uh, Come on, I mean, let's report this serious. That- let's report this serious news <laughs> about the stolen ape JPEGs. <laughs> so someone got their Instagram account hacked. Was bought Ape Yacht Club, and then. Because in the crypto world, you release NFTs like they're like new sneakers or something. They put up a like advertising thing saying, you know, connect your wallet to claim apes somehow. And then that process results in people's apes being stolen. Is that the technical? I don't 
understand how we arrive. It's like trying to get drunk by connecting your bloodstream up to a stranger's bloodstream. You know what I mean? Like, sounds like a. <laughs> this is how you get the alcohol. It's not a good way to get drunk. It is not a good way no, to get drunk. Not. I don't think. But yes, there are a bunch of sad people who have lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of ape JPEGs uh, because cryptocurrency. I, 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 how do you wake up in the morning and think I own three hundred thousand dollars worth of apes? I, I kind of enjoy. I kind of enjoy the levity that these crypto stories bring because we've got another one here, man, and this is just, this is just so cool. Uh, so <laughs> there was a there was a Ethereum developer named Virgil Griffith. Uh, who went to prison for like doing a talk at a North Korean blockchain conference. And now Christopher Ems, who is apparently a co-conspirator in establishing this conference in North Korea, uh, is on the lam because authorities are seeking uh, to charge him. Uh, This is a story by Lorenzo over at Vice. Now, the thing that is just so striking about this, uh, this story is in the indictment, they actually have a transcript of this guy's speech, his opening remarks at this crypto conference that he helped set up in Pyongyang. And I'm going to read it because it's just, it's so special. All right. It's a great (laughs) honor to be leading this delegation here in Pyongyang to explain to you a bit about finance and more specifically about blockchain within finance. My name is Christopher Ems. I am the technology advisor to the Korean Friendship Association, which has done a lot of work outside in support of DPRK, and the great leaders, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. So today we're going to explain to you a lot about blockchain. And here's where it gets just mind-blown emoji. To start with, I'm sure a lot of people in this room will understand how predominantly the United States controls the way in which money moves around the world, and this can be very, very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) So you get up at a conference in Pyongyang and just telegraph that you're teaching them how to evade sanctions, and then you just... And then you're surprised. You're surprised when you get into trouble. <laughs> oh, it felt good though. It felt good to read that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh man, yeah. They, I mean, they really do think that that the crypto ecosystem exists outside of the rest of the world, right? That it doesn't have consequences or interactions, or you know, the, you know, they believe the the Silicon Valley, you know, cypherpunk well dreams. Well, Adam, that actually closes out uh, this week's this week's news segment. Uh, that that was an interesting twist at the end there. And uh, yeah, great to chat to you again, my friend. And uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yes, I'm looking forward to it next week, and I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Brett Winterford. Brett is a former colleague of ours here at Risky Biz, uh, who these days serves as the regional chief security officer for Okta in the Asia Pacific. And of course, Okta is this week's sponsor. And Brett is joining me today to talk through the lapsus incident. Now, if you've been hiding under a rock for the last month or so, uh, I'll, I'll just recap. I am talking about the incident in which the lapsus hacking crew 
posted screenshots to their Telegram purporting to show that they had some sort of administrative access to Okta's customer accounts, right? But as you've heard previously on this show, the whole thing was a bit of a non-event. The screenshots just showed Lapsus had access to a third-party support contractor's workstation and turns out you couldn't really do much with that access. Uh, that hasn't stopped uh, what I'm calling like the Okta truthers from doing their thing, though. Uh, according to them, every single Okta account in the whole world was breached and it's raining fire, the world ended. But uh, no, that's not actually what happened. Uh, Okta has concluded its post-mortem on the whole event. Uh, I've linked through to its statement about the conclusion of that investigation in this week's show notes. Now, there's a couple of interesting things in that statement. Uh, they've fired Cytel, which was the third-party contractor, and they're even going to take over the management of all customer service endpoints, even those being used by third-party contractors, which I thought, you know, I think is an interesting move. But yeah, Brett joined me for this interview in which he walks us through the whole lapsus incident from start to finish. And I hope you enjoy uh, this interview. I think it's great. Here it is. So this event started for us like everyone else when Lapsus um, published these screenshots on their Telegram account, uh, which demonstrated that they were able to view customer support interactions by one of our uh, technical support partners um, named Cytel. And that immediately tracked with some activity we'd seen in January. Uh, it had obviously date stamps on it. And back in January, we'd, we'd had this event where a, uh, a user account associated with a Cytel employee, an Okta user account, there'd been a, uh, a change of password from outside the IP range of, um, of the Cytel network. And then after they'd, they'd gone through this password reset flow, which had sent the password reset link to their secondary email inbox, they had then tried to authenticate and didn't satisfy an MFA challenge. So that um, that really pricked up the ears of, of one of the folks in my team, a young incident responder who was on watch in Australia, and uh, he kind of chased it down and, and talked to the um, talked to the staff member um, at this at Cytel who said, uh, "No, I didn't change my password." And at that point, we knew that there was something something amiss, possibly a compromised user account on the Cytel network or a, a compromised uh, Microsoft 365 account or both. And we uh, sent, sent Cytel the, the IP address that this activity had originated from and said to them, you know, can you please have a look into this? And they came back to us and said, yes, you're right, there is a, a compromised inbox and we've, um, we've contained this and uh, you, you have nothing to worry about and, and we'll let you know when you can reinstate the user. So naturally, we didn't just leave it there. We followed it up a few times, trying to ascertain exactly how they'd contained it, whether they could send us any logs or any evidence or a, a report that would that would kind of give us some some comfort that someone that had access, you know, an account that has access to the customer support tool hadn't been any further compromised. We were pretty satisfied that the account takeover event had been thwarted by a technology. And from that point on, we were literally just going back to them every now and then and saying, can you tell us more about what happened? Um, eventually, they agreed that they would bring in a, um, a third-party forensics firm of some repute to give us... It's still um, funny that you guys you guys just say a third-party forensics firm when everybody knows it was Mandiant, but anyway. <laughs> of course. Well, it's not, our, it's not our place to say it because we aren't the ones that commissioned that report. But yes, eventually, you know, on March 17, our technical support partner provided us a summary of Mandiant's report, which again concluded that... You know, there was no impact to Okta and no impact to our customers. But it did also say that there was um, devices compromised. And that wasn't consistent with what we'd, <laughs> <laughs> what we'd heard earlier. So, you know, pretty much before we could act on that 
Lapsus had published their screenshots and there was, you know, egg all over our face at, at Okta and, and uh, the security team was, um, was put to, 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 to work at that point. You know, from, from there, it was really about how well or not we could respond given the limited visibility we had into what had happened at Cytel. Now, the comms on this thing were a dog's breakfast, like respectfully, okay? Okta was putting out statements talking about what attackers hadn't done but not really giving us any information on what the attacker might have been able to do. So it was saying things like, um, you know, the, the, the statement would say something like, well, the attacker could only do whatever, you know, a support engineer could do. And then you didn't tell us what a support engineer could do. And we had no way of knowing what a support engineer could do because, uh, you know, we don't have that sort of, no one has that sort of insight into how uh, Okta handles third-party support agents and access you know, the only people who have that insight are, are you guys. Now, would you, you admit that the comms on this thing were actually quite bad? Can I, can I get well, you to admit I, that? I think if you talk to a decent sample of our customers, they'd agree with you. Um, they certainly weren't happy with our comms. They were, certainly weren't happy that they were learning about an event that was you know, material to Okta through social media and, and, and through the news and, and not directly from us. Our instinct at that time was to try and tell customers or give them some reassurance that they didn't have to take any corrective actions because the first things that started happening after Lapsus published those screenshots is that organisations started coming out talking about, you know, doing mass password resets and, and not trusting, uh, you know, Okta. Yeah, I think that, I was uh, – Matthew, Matthew Prince from Cloudflare was, you know, tweeting about how they were doing an org-wide rotation. And I can, look, I can understand being, given that – that their organisation was in the screenshots, why they would be flipping out. In the absence, yeah. you know, if you don't provide information quickly in that vacuum, people will take whatever measures they feel is appropriate to take. So I don't think it was the right action to take, but I totally understand why you'd do it. And they weren't the only ones. So we were trying to convince people, yeah. look, the attacker couldn't do the following things to reassure them that the impact was, was going to be minimal. We, we, we were pretty, even at that early stage, even without the visibility we needed uh, from from you know things like device logs, we were we were pretty confident just on scanning our application logs, looking at the logs of the customer support tool, that there was no activity we saw that wasn't consistent with customer support tickets that had been raised at that time. But we now, you know, now this is an important thing. I want to I want to jump in on here, right? Is because at at some point Okta came out and said, well, there were you know uh, three hundred and sixty six organisations that had had some sort of interaction through this third party support provider, you know, and they've all been notified. And this led to headlines saying three hundred and sixty six Okta you know Okta customers were impacted. And no, not really. Like it's just like here's you know here's some logs. If you are one of the three hundred and you know sixty six, here's some logs so you can go investigate and make sure this was a legit action. That was one of those things done out of an abundance of caution. But you just couldn't take a trick, <laughs> right? No, at that look, point. the optics of it yeah. were, were wrong. But you know, I guess the CEO said to us a few times, you know, optics be damned. Like we know what it's like to not have the right transparency from one of our service providers, we're not going to go and do that to our customers. We're going to tell them, we'll be straight up front with you. If you had interactions, any interactions at all, if there had been any hit on one of our applications from an IP address associated with Cytel over the period of time in which we couldn't completely trust activity on, on the Cytel network, then we would tell you about it and then we would ship you the logs from the customer support tool. Now, it sounded like the right thing to do actually 
until the security team had to normalise the logs from a tool that had never been put in front of anyone else before. Basically, this is an yeah. internal tool, right? So when a customer support agent, what the hell? Takes an what the hell action, do these logs what mean? What the hell do these do logs mean? mean? Yeah. So you know, when a, when a customer support agent takes an action um, on on a on a tenant, then it appears in Okta system log, which is in the, the admin console of, of every Okta customer, but not necessarily when they just view a piece of information. That, not, that doesn't necessarily get logged in system log. So we're trying to figure out what these hundreds of API calls actually mean in reality and then normalize them, ship that into a package for each of these 366 organizations and send it out to them. And then what we realized once we had sent it out, of course, is that about half of the customers that were in this potentially impacted list had no resources or capability to actually ingest and understand that information. So then it meant hundreds of phone calls between the security team and our customers. We're, we're, we're pretty close now to our customers. We've got yeah, pretty, can, pretty intimate on this stuff. I can but imagine. The whole point was to show them, look, we've been caught absolutely flat-footed here and we haven't been able to respond the way we'd respond. We, we'd, we'd wish we could have responded we're getting absolutely wrecked in social media and in, in the news. But let's just focus on making sure that you have 100% confidence in what we're saying. And that's why we ship them the logs. Yeah. Now, look, uh, we've got this right up now, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a postmortem summary. And there's a couple of interesting things in it. First of all, like, I think pretty early on, we zeroed in on this idea that third-party support engineers for Okta can't really do much, right? Like, as an attacker, you're not really going to get much. Uh, from taking over one of those accounts. Probably your best bet is to start jumping into those Slack channels that seem to be over-provisioned and see if you can pull out some, you know, authentication material or whatever. But from a standpoint of actually, you know, the Okta console where you can perform user actions, you couldn't really do anything. I think it could have been handy if you already had someone's mailbox and then you wanted to re-enroll MFA so that, that you could then log in and gain access to additional corporate services like... So if you had access to an Okta support engineer and you had act- uh, uh, access to a victim mailbox, it might be useful as a sort of pseudo-privilege escalation vector. That's a pretty limited, you know, it can come in handy, but it's not kind of, yeah, what was being reported. But what you have reported now is, you know, we've gone down from this number of 366 down to two, okay? And what you've said is that uh, the attacker was able to access uh, two Okta tenants. Now, again... I'm going to critique the comms a little bit because you've said that these uh, the the attacker could access two octa tenants, but then you haven't told us what a tenant is, and yeah. uh, you also haven't told us what the attacker could do by accessing one of these tenants. So can you clear that up for our audience right now? So it is not the octa admin console for those customers. It is not where you administer as as the org administrator, you know, and 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 an octa environment as a customer. It is the customer support page associated with with that particular customer. So let's say that Risky Business is a customer. I go into this customer support tool, SuperUser, and I type in the search bar, Risky Business, and it lists five organizations that are the closest matched, and I, and I click on one of them. When I click on one of them, it brings up information about what licenses that customer has consumed, you know, what feature flags are currently enabled, you know, who, who their admins are and, and a bunch of features that can be used as in a, in a break glass scenario. So when you're providing support to, to a customer and the you know, super admin at that customer 
has locked themselves out of the account or they've, they've made a policy change and they can't figure out what it is that's preventing them from being able to access the account. Well, that's where customer support can say, all right, we'll go to your inbox and I'll, I'll um, fire off this temporary access or, you know, I'll, I'll do an MFA reset or whatever it is that, that, that can help the, the, the actual administrator of the org get on with business. Bear, um, bearing in mind that an MFA reset in this case, you still need to have access to the inbox to get that MFA reset flow, right? Exactly. Yep. Uh, that's that, yeah, that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, look, you know, we're getting towards the end of this now, um, but I, there's one more thing I, I, I kind of wanted to bring into this because it looks like uh, the attacker was able to get an active thin client session. You and I have spoken before we got started. There's the, uh, you know, the, it's been described as a 25-minute session. Looks like they got in had a look at these two pages, customer pages, customer support pages, realised they couldn't do much, had a bit of a rummage around in Slack, and then this support engineer at Cytel uh, came back to their desk, noticed their mouse moving around and uh, raised the alarm. I mean, that's about the that's about the whole thing, isn't it? That's about the extent of the impact on Okta and its customers from what happened on, on Cytel's network. I mean, there were, there were four or five days of activity on the network prior to that, uh, we're talking about what happened right at the end. So there's the attempted account. You're talking about what event. happened when the when the Cytel breach met Okta. Yeah, basically, you know that they. It's it's almost as though the threat actor only realised at that point. Oh my god, these guys provide support services to Okta because they went from discovery activity to just basically into let's see if I can authenticate directly to Okta. So that hence the um, the attempted account takeover of of one of the Cytel users that failed. Okay. Let's piggyback off one of these um, thin client sessions and, you know, basically channel surfing until they found one that had the customer support tool open and had that, you know, 25 minutes of joy to, to click around and see if they could do anything, uh, that, you know, that, that would be of interest. Um, and, and they didn't, you know, it doesn't appear from, from any of the application logs, authentication logs, thin client logs, that they achieved much at all uh, until uh, they were noticed and had to back out in a hurry. Now, finally, uh, you have terminated your relationship with that third-party contractor. Uh, I imagine that this is not simply because they got a workstation or a thin client session owned. Everyone, I think, in this incident is getting judged about how they responded to a small event rather than the actual event itself. Uh, all right, Brett Winifred, thank you so much for joining us on the show to walk through an incident that really got a lot more ink than it kind of deserved. I think it's a great case study, actually, for... PR people, if I'm going to be honest, because, yeah, it really did blow up on Okta when it was kind of a minor incident. And I think there's a lot of lessons people can learn from it. Thanks a lot for joining us, dude. Great to see you. You too. Thanks, Pat. That was Brett Winterford there in this week's sponsor interview. Big thanks to Okta for sponsoring this week's show. And I do hope you found that interview valuable. Anyway, that's it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to Risky Business News, the newsletter written by Catalan Kimpanu that is published by Risky Business. And you can find that one at riskybiznews.substack.com. I've linked through to it in this week's show notes. Uh, but that's it from me today. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll be back soon with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.